According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in John chapter 15. We have one final issue to deal with, and then we will move on to John chapter 16. So John 15 and 16. We're in the portion of the Gospel of John here where everything is just red. Page after page after page. All letters of words of Christ in red. What's often referred to as the upper room discourse. I've lately been calling it the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. Because at the end of chapter 14, he says, get up, let us go from here. And uh, then in chapters 15 and 16, they're walking. Chapter 17, they are still walking. He gives his high priestly prayer and then uh, crosses over the... Kidron uh, Ravine and enters into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, there at the beginning of John chapter 18. So this is where uh, where we are. Remember, this is the night in which he's betrayed. Uh, the traitor has already left. And uh, that's what started this whole message is when he said, what you do, do quickly. And uh, Judas Iscariot, with Satan possessing him, uh, departed the upper room. They went off to go fetch the soldiers and... Uh, uh, that is, presently, uh, the soldiers are on their way to arrest the Lord. That's why they had to get out of that room the when they did at the end of chapter 14. And uh, now they're walking through the city. They're headed towards the garden for prayer. And uh, this is where we are. All right, John chapter 15. We dealt with love last week. You love one another. Greater love has no one than this. He laid down his life for his friends and... We have all the the love that's here. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. And uh, seeing everything there is to deal with agape love, in those verses, we're ready now to move on to the idea of hate. Starting in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. All right, so we've got to deal with issues of hate here today. Before we do that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice at the opportunity we have once again today to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, this is a grace provision. We haven't earned it or deserved it. Who are we that, uh, that you should uh, include us in your counsel, that you should reveal your mind to us, your thinking to us? Uh, but Father, this is what you choose to do as you have placed us in Christ. You have um, exalted the church, Father, and in uh, such tremendous ways. So, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, we thank you for the privilege we did not earn or deserve. We thank you for the opportunity that we have. And, Father, we just want to be faithful. We want to lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. In the overall outline, this is main point seven. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. In this, uh, we looked at the uh, vine tending that takes place, the true vine, the true vine, the corollary that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. And uh, everything that goes into verses 1 through 8 here that relates to our reality in the church age had as its foreshadowing, as its... Uh, type 
the role of uh, Adam and Eve there in the garden in the tending of the vine. Well, the true vine is Jesus Christ, and the true vine dresser is God the Father. And all of the, the shadow doctrine that can be found in Genesis as it relates to uh, the uh, stewardship of the Gentiles in the very first human dispensation now has its reality in the church and how we operate as part of the uh, royal family of God. Secondly, we uh, moved on to verses 9 through 17. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Once we start to identify with uh, our role as abiding in Christ, then we can start to recognize our responsibility in abiding in love. That uh, productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Uh, sacrificial love is not for the baby. Sacrificial love is a mature application. And so it's not an accident that verses 1 through 8 precedes verses 9 through 17. Somebody that doesn't know how to abide in Christ or abide in His Word, uh, there's no point ordering them to abide in, in Christ's love. They're not equipped to abide in Christ's love. They don't have the first clue how to abide in Christ's love. Uh, abiding in Christ's love is a mature application that only comes about once you understand how to abide in the Word of God and how to abide in Christ Himself for fruit-bearing. And that's why verses 1 through 8 precedes verses 9 through 17. Now, under this, uh, we had some issues, um, one, two, three, and four, but we're going to let those go, I think. We um, left off with this, uh, the fourth point. Just real quickly, let's run through these. Uh, Jesus' love for his church is just as the Father has loved him. All right? We paid attention to the just as's that we have here in verse 9 and and uh, verse 10, the just as's that we see here. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now, the just as. How did the Father love the Son? Well, from the foundation of the world, because it's an eternal love. That's how the Son has loved us, from the foundation of the world. It's an eternal love. And also, how did the Father love the Son? With a giftedness of all things for all time. The Father has given everything to the Son. All things are created for Him. All things are created, uh, I'm sorry, through Him and for Him. Everything is for the Son. Likewise, when the Son gives Himself, everything is for the church. Everything is for us. He has freely given us all things. What is our love supposed to be? It should be eternal and it should be everything. Giving of everything. There's nothing that we hold back. There's, we don't draw a line anywhere. We don't say, well... Um, I only love you this far. No, there is no line that you draw. So Jesus' love for His church is just as the Father has loved Him. That is, eternally and infinitely. From the foundation of the world and with the love giftedness of all things for all time. Alright, secondly then. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. Consequent imperative. It's an imperative that's based upon something else being true. Something else being true is the Father has loved me, I have loved you. That being true then, the consequent imperative is that we are supposed to abide in that love. Living daily in the conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love. We are to abide in that love, to live in it, to dwell in it, to make it our home. It's the place that we belong. It's the place that we're comfortable. It's the place that we rest in. Not a place that we visit every so often. <laughs> Not a place that we visit occasionally. We talked about this when we talk about abiding in the Word of God. Some people are so uncomfortable with the Word of God, it's clear that they don't live there. 
it's clear that they're not familiar with it. They can't find their way around. You know, imagine uh, getting lost in your own home and then saying, now, where's the kitchen again? You know, well, you know, who can't find the kitchen in their own home if you've lived there longer than, you know, one day? <laughs> you know, and I suspect that even on that first day when you moved in, you learned where the kitchen was and, and so forth. Now, if you're in a home that you don't live in, you're a home where you don't belong and and uh, and you don't know all the rooms, you don't know all the things, and sure, there's going to be things you're not familiar with. And, and you have to find your way around. You have to kind of explore and, and poke around and learn stuff. But not in your own home. But you, you, know where the, you know where the kitchen is. You know where the bedroom is. You know where the bathroom is. All right? And, uh, you know, when I'm talking to a believer and he, can't, he doesn't know where Colossians is and he's not really sure, Second John, where's that? And um, different things. Well, you, you learn pretty quickly. This is somebody that doesn't live in the Word of God. He's not abiding in doctrine. He's not abiding in the Word. Same thing with abiding in the love of Christ. Abiding in the love of Christ. How few believers are abiding in the love of Christ. They don't spend much time there. They don't understand the love of Christ. And, uh, and that's unfortunate. Alright, so it's a consequent imperative. A couple of sub-points under that. Uh, but we'll let that go because we dealt with that last week. Thirdly then. No, there were no sub-points under two. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong point. Point three. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. This is now verse 11 of John 15. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. If you are abiding in Christ's love, then you are now equipped to understand what this fullness of joy is. Not just to have joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. A baby believer can have joy if he's in fellowship. But the fullness of, of joy. Christ's joy. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. His joy. Not your own joy. Not the things that make you happy. The things that make Him happy. What produces joy in Christ? And we get to share in that. We become partakers of that. This is the point that had a couple of sub-points. A and a B. And we'll let that go because we dealt with that a week ago. Now point four. The last thing we want to say the love for the body of Christ is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. Love for the body of Christ. I should say agape love for the body of Christ is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. The baby believer does not have the capacity to do this. Not in its fullness. Not in the way that we are commanded to do. Love for the body of Christ is a fully adult. See, it's not a child love. It's not just a baby love. It's not just a, well, you know, you feed me. The, the infant loves mommy because mommy has nipples. You know, mommy has milk. And the baby nurses. And the baby is fed. And the baby, uh, you know, the diaper gets changed. And so the baby uh, has a baby love based upon the baby needs being met. That's not agape love. That's not the adult capacity that we're commanded to have. It is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. It is to be just as the Lord has loved us. Just as. And again, I say we are focusing on these just as's. Verse 12 says, just as I have loved you. That's our command. So again, what is that? It's eternal and it's infinite. It's eternal and it's infinite. Just as. It's the only way for it to be just as. It's not a temporal thing. And it's not a finite thing. It's not bound up in time. It's eternal. And it's not 
conditional. It's not, it doesn't depend upon whether the person deserves it or not. Or what have they done for you lately? Or what are you expecting to get back in return? It's unconditional, eternal, integrity love. Secondly, agape love provides motivational virtue for philos love. This is where we start to find, we, we stretch, we go from agape to phileo. We have now friends that are in view in verses 13 through 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Because you have capacity for the agape love, you have agape love, I have agape love, together we can now have philos love with one another. We can have that rapport. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then thirdly, verse 15, a slavery stewardship cannot achieve this reality. A slavery stewardship cannot achieve this reality. Israel could not fulfill the agape expectations that the church is placed under. To love one another, that's a new commandment I give to you. It wasn't given to Israel. Israel was commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, what's that? That's not infinite. That's not eternal. Their heart, mind, soul, and strength is not infinite. and It's not eternal. And it's not just as the Father has loved the Son. And it's not just as the Son has loved the church. So Israel had a command to love. And all the law can be summarized in those two points. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But that is not the new commandment that is given to the church that we love just as Christ has loved us. That we love one another just as I have loved you. That's a new commandment. That's a brand new commandment introduced back in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. And it gets repeated again in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. You think it's important? It's uh, what causes the church to, uh, to stand out as not only something different from anything the world has today, something different from anything the world has ever seen in the history of humanity. Gentiles didn't have this commandment. Israel didn't have this commandment. This is for only for the royal family of God. Then finally, point C then. The last thing we say here in chapter 15. So this is main point 7, sub point C. We become targets for, the co- for cosmos hatred. We become targets for cosmos hatred. Point C, we become targets for cosmos hatred. And this is John 15, verses 18 through 27. John 15, verses 18 through 27. Ten full verses. About a third of the chapter. Slightly more than a third of the chapter is about this hatred. Cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. I didn't transliterate it on the screen. All I did was I, I gave you the, the Greek letters. Hopefully you can read that. The kappa looks like a K, does it not? The Omicron looks like an O, does it not? The M almost looks like an M. The Mu, it looks like a kind of a funky little cursive squiggly M, right? With the first leg that kind of hangs down low. K-O-S-M-O-S. The two S's are different, by the way. Sigma has a medial form and a final form. So um, the K-O-S-M-O-S, those are both sigmas. It's just the sigma at the end actually looks like an English letter S. It's uh, simply the final form for the Greek sigma. K-O-S-M-O-S. My apologies for not transliterating it on the screen. In fact, I don't think I transliterated it anywhere. I've got four subpoints where I didn't transliterate it in any of them. So, you just have to learn how to read the word cosmos and, and deal with it. How's that sound? All right. We become the targets for cosmos hatred. Now, understand, what is cosmos? 
Cosmos is world. All right. Cosmos is world. But it's the world in its arrangement. Okay. The world in its present arrangement. It's not the gay, you know, where we get geo. We're not talking about the geography. We're not talking about the, the structure of the planet. We're not talking about the real estate. When we talk about cosmos, we're talking about the arrangement, like cosmetics. You ladies put on cosmetics, and that's when you arrange your face, right, with cosmetics. And so cosmos is the arrangement. And right now, the arrangement is Satan's running the place, (laughs) okay? Right now, the arrangement is mankind has fallen. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. And the fallen angels are are the power behind the throne in the Gentile nations. All right, we understand how this works. So the arrangement is a fallen world. This, this cosmos is passing away, and along with it, it's lost. Thankfully, there's going to be a new arrangement. The new heavens and new earth are going to have a new arrangement. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> All right, so we become targets for cosmos hatred. That's the world's ha- hatred. Okay? And so there's nothing wrong with translating it world, but understand it's the world as it's presently arranged under Satan's dominion. We become targets for the cosmos hatred. So let's look at it. Verse 18. If the cosmos hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Okay? So it's not about you. It's not about you. The world doesn't hate you because of you. Just as God doesn't love you because of you. (laughs) Okay? God loves you because of him. Likewise, the world hates you because of him. Because of God. Because of God the Father and God the Son. Alright. If you were of the cosmos, the cosmos would love its own. But because you are not of the cosmos, but I chose you out of the cosmos, because of this, the cosmos hates you. Alright. Now the world does not have the capacity for sacrificial, unconditional, integrity, love. The world only loves its own. The world only loves that which is in conformity to itself. And so we see it stated here. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world used to love you. The world used to when you belonged to the world. Remember, when you were in Adam, you were of the world. You were in the world and of the world. But the moment you got saved, you were transferred out of Satan's dominion, out of the dominion of darkness, delivered into the kingdom of God the Father's beloved Son. Okay? And from that moment forward, you became the world's enemy. The world now hates you. All right, because I, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. And so this is God's uh, work. This is what he does, part of the transformation in our salvation. We are no longer of the world. See? All right, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Who do you think you are? That you're not entitled, that you somehow are exempt that you would you would avoid persecution, that you would avoid suffering, and you would avoid tribulation. How do you rate in the plan of God, right? You know, are you greater than your master? You you know, you have every heavenly blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That means everything you have, everything you are, is absorbed in in Christ. You're not greater than Christ. If Christ suffered, you think you're entitled to not suffer? If Christ was persecuted, what do you what should you expect? That's the whole point here in this verse. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And the fact is, they, they didn't. They don't. They're unbelievers. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, 
because they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know the Father and they hate the Son. And so they're going to attack you. It's the way it works. Welcome to the church age. Okay, It is called the intensified stage in the angelic conflict. It is, uh, it is the stewardship of, of maximum satanic hatred. All right. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin or greater accountability and guilt related to their sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. We're going to talk about this. Why the world has the maximum accountability in this stewardship as well. Uh, for he, uh, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. All right. So this fallen world has maximum accountability in this stewardship because of the past completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, we'll, we'll discuss that. It's coming up as a subpoint. Uh, we're going to discuss how it is the world has more accountability today than they did prior to the coming of the Messiah. All right. And why it is that uh, the judgment's going to be harsher for them in the day of judgment than it was even for Sodom and Gomorrah, even than it's going to be for, uh, for the Assyrians or for some of the other Gentile nations of the Old Testament times. Because they did not receive what, uh, what we receive today, what, what unbelievers receive today as far as a testimony and a witness. Okay, just to wrap it up then, let's wrap up with 26 and 27, and we'll go back and get our points of study. Uh, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. We've had promises of the Holy Spirit in chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. Uh, there'll be more coming up in chapter 16, chapter 17. It's a common theme for the coming church age. All right, so point C again, we become the targets for cosmos hatred. Now, four things under this. First of all, point one, cosmos hatred against us. Cosmos hatred against us. Don't take it personally. <laughs> cosmos hatred against us is preceded and motivated by cosmos hatred against Jesus Christ and ultimately God the Father. Cosmos hatred against us is preceded and motivated by cosmos hatred against Jesus Christ. That's verse 18. And ultimately, God the Father. Verses 23 and 24. It's a hatred of Christ. But why is it a hatred of Christ? Because it's a hatred of the Father. And the Father's good pleasure to exalt and magnify Christ. Cosmos hatred against us is preceded and motivated by Cosmos hatred against Jesus Christ. That's verse 18. But ultimately, Cosmos hatred against God the Father. Verses 23 and 24. Remember, Satan views himself as an alternative to the Father. I will be like the Most High God. Satan views himself as a counterfeit father. Satan is going he's gonna to procreate and produce an, an antichrist. He's going to produce a beloved son that will stand opposed to God the Father's beloved son. But Satan views himself, the dragon, views himself as opposed to God the Father. So his, his primary hatred is for God the Father. And since God the Father's greatest 
love in the universe is for God the Son, that becomes a target number one for Satan's hatred. But it's motivated by his hatred for God the Father. You see how that works? And then because the bride is in Christ, we are the greatest object of, God, of Jesus Christ's love, we become hatred target number three. The Father is hated first, the Son is hated second, the church is hated third. All right? And that's saying something. It's hard to find something that Satan hates more than Israel. <laughs> but the church actually beats out Israel for Satan's hatred. In an interesting way. All right. So we've already read these. Verse 18, verses 23 and 24. You see, uh, again, it has hated me before it's hated you. That's the hatred for Christ. It's the hatred for Christ. And that's a, that's a common thread. We see that today. <laughs> you know, it, it's just it's remarkable. All of the all of the, uh, the the applications of this in our culture. Why, you know, why do they hate? Why do the feminists hate the Bible? Okay, why do they hate that? Why do they hate the 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 the, ma- the male role within marriage? And why do they hate the female role within marriage? They hate it, absolutely hate it. And yet. They don't, say, they don't say a word about the mistreatment of women in Islam. Why? You know, they, they look at all these Muslim women wearing these, these you know, black bedsheets, you know, robes, and, and, and they're, they're covered head to toe, and women are just treated like animals in Islam. Why aren't the feminists protesting Islam? Like they protest the Southern Baptists, or they protest evangelicals, or, or whatever else. Okay. You know, the homosexuals hate Christ. It's all about hatred of Christ. See, that's their common thread. And whether it's the feminists, the homosexuals, the Muslims, you name it. Their common hatred for Jesus Christ gives them only one enemy, Christ. Not each other. Okay? You know, you would think, you know, homosexuals get get stoned in Islam. They get hung in Saudi Arabia and Iran and so forth. But they're not they're not marching against Islam. They're marching against Christianity. In any event, that's what we see in our culture, and there it is. It's hatred for Christ. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at all. But then ultimately, it's hatred against God the Father. And this is verses 23 and 24. He who hates me hates my Father also. It precedes and motivates. And um, they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you've hated me, You've hated the Father. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. All right. Secondly, then, cosmos friendship. Cosmos friendship is reserved for its own denizens. I was very proud of this word. I haven't used it in years. It's like citizens, only diabolical. The denizens of the cosmos. Cosmos friendship is reserved for its own denizens. It will never love you. If you spend your time trying to get the world to love you, you're wasting your time. And if you start loving the world again because of your compromises and the the friendship with the world that you uh, cave and start embracing, you're putting yourself back into an adversarial hostility with God. Point two, cosmos friendship is reserved for its own denizens. John fifteen nineteen and our attempted friendship with the cosmos 
results in an adversarial hostility with God, James 4.4. 4. Take John 15.19 and connect it to James 4.4, 4, and I think you'll see the connection comes through pretty powerfully. Cosmos friendship is reserved for its own denizens, John 15.19. This cosmos loves its own. It no longer loves you. It's reserved for its own denizens, its own citizens, those that are still of that nature. Our, and our attempted friendship with the cosmos results in an adversarial hostility with God. That's not why He saved us. He saved us that we would be aliens and strangers, pilgrims, we would be ambassadors, that we would be different, that we would exhibit our new nature, that we would cast off that old nature, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. The idea that somebody now with the new nature would, would abandon that, would, would spit on that in, in defiance, and, and try to embrace that old nature again and that old the, the, the connections with that cosmos is, uh, is uh, tragic. He calls it trampling underfoot. The son, regarding his unclean, the blood of the covenant. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. The author of Hebrews puts it in pretty blunt terms that way. You know, really? Is that, is that how little you think of the blood of Christ? Is that the, the despising you hold? Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., that you're just going to embrace friendship with the world? That's how you respond to the unconditional love that produced your eternal life. Again, verse 19, if you were of the world, and this is what I wanted to look up. Let me bring this up in Logos. So you can see the green there. Remember, the agape, agapao applications are blue. The phileo, philos applications are green. And so as I pull up a Greek text, a ectu cosmu eta, if you were of the world, and we know you're not, this is a second class condition, it is known to be false. I know that you're not of the world, but if you were, ha cosmos on ta idion e. Filet. There's your phileo. There's your phileo. Did you see that? When I highlighted FLA there, then the love over there got highlighted. Anyway, when you highlight Cosmo, then world gets highlighted. It's called sympathetic highlighting, and it's a it's a neat way to cheat when you're not sure uh, you're not sure what this word is. Ta idion. Oh, it's on. Okay. All right. In any event, it's phileo. The world, I mean, I said a little bit ago, the world doesn't have a capacity for agapao. All right? How, how could the world possibly agapao? How could the world possibly have sacrificial, unconditional, eternal love? Agapao requires a transformation to God's own nature. God is love. God is love. And, and pastors often make the statement, and I hesitate to make it, that no unbeliever can ever agapao. Ever. Okay? And the only reason I hesitate to say that is because I can find verses where agape is used of an unbeliever. Um, so, with a note of caution, the way that language uses words, we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to just trap ourselves into a, a formula with agape or agapao uh, and make blanket statements like that. In any event, the, it doesn't apply here anyway because the word is phileo. 
the world would phileo its own. The world does not phileo us. The world only phileos its own. You know, the phileo is the rapport. It's what you have in common. It's what you, uh, what you have here in the philos friendship love, the rapport love. So, uh, there it is. Now, this is, this is the things in common. This is philos. And this is what people get confused when they get agape and philos mixed up. Or they think marriage is based on philos. It's not. All right. The command is to uh, husbands to agape, agapao, your wives. Say, but philos, this, this rapport, this friendship love, means you have things in common and you're attracted to things that they're attracted to. You love baseball. Somebody else loves baseball. Together you have a, a baseball philia, a baseball uh, philos love. Okay? In any event, we no longer have any of that with the world. Because we are no longer of the world. We're, we're now strangers. We're now pilgrims and, and aliens. We, we have, we're citizens of heaven. So the things that, of this world, that this world loves, what are the, what are the achievements, the, the, uh, the, the treasures, the things that this world values? It's all satanic anyway because of the present cosmos arrangement. All right, we have a new arrangement. That's all I'm trying to say there. All right. Just wanted to double check that that was phileo. And it is. James 4.4 4, then. James 4.4. 4. While we're not to have this kind of fellowship, friendship, rapport with the world. You adulteresses. You know, the Bible starts name calling. That ought to get your attention. Do you not know? You ought to know. This ought to be plain. This ought to be understood. Friendship with the world. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend, a philos of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. You are a self-manufactured enemy. And you shouldn't be. There's no reason for it. You were an enemy before He saved you. Now you're a son. Why would you be a self-manufactured enemy once again? Fortunately, you don't lose your salvation. You're not a, an enemy, eternal enemy by position. But you are in an adversarial hostility orientation once again by experience. You make yourself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So we ought to understand what is our relationship to this world. Now, don't carry it to the extent that you become a hermit or a monk. Uh, Paul ridiculed the Corinthians to say, you know, you can't go out of the world. You know, you can't, when he said not to associate with a fornicator, uh, with an, uh, we can look at this in First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, he said, for then you would have to go out of the world. That's not what I was talking about. When we talk about the associations there, for then you would have to go out of the world. You familiar with the passage I'm talking about? First uh, Corinthians chapter five, verses nine through thirteen. I wrote to you my letter. This is a, a, a letter that precedes First Corinthians. We don't have it in our Bibles, but I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with fornicators, immoral people. I did not at all mean with the fornicators of this world, of this cosmos, or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the cosmos. You know, don't be stupid. 
what are you going to do? Leave planet Earth? <laughs> you know, what are you going to go live in a cave somewhere and be a hermit and not, not know any unbeliever anywhere? He said, but actually I wrote to you not to associate. And here's the idea of association. What's the difference between friendship and association? What's the difference between this rapport love and association? Not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay? And so we start to see there are differences between you still have agape love for your brother, but you can't have philos love for your brother when he's living this way. When he's defiling the Christian way of life in the way that he's doing this. See? Not even to eat with such a one. Even just sharing a meal of is is... Out of the question. But could you have a meal with an unbeliever? Is that friendship with the world? No. You see the differences here. And so the idea then, you, you still have to have connections. You want, still want to have outreach. You still want to have uh, associations. You have people you work with, people in your neighborhood, people in your town, people you have business dealings with. You should know all kinds of unbelievers so that you can be telling them about Christ. Now, you don't you don't join with them in their carnality <laughs> when they when they invite you to their next orgy you're not going but if if uh, they invite you to a meal you know and within your conscience sake well, Lord ate with tax collectors he ate with prostitutes he ate with uh, with all kinds of folks you see the difference I'm making sense right okay <laughs> so friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. Where is that line drawn? We talk about drawing a line. Drawing a line. Where is it that I have an association, because I can't leave the world, I have an association as an ambassador for a witness and a testimony. But where does that association then get to the point where now I'm compromised, now I'm defiled, now it's rubbed off, now um, that darkness is, uh, I'm participating in those needs of darkness. I can't do that. I can't do that. All right. And to be fair, different believers find different, put that line in different places. And they, uh, they have, some have more of a relaxed attitude of some things, and some have a less relaxed attitude about other things. And so there it is. But friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He's a jealous God. You think the scripture, you think, the, you think that God had a point for writing the Bible? I think he did. And we're accountable. We're accountable. So we are targets for cosmos hatred. Thirdly, persecution and martyrdom are the heritage of those who become bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Persecution and martyrdom are the heritage of those who become bond slaves of Jesus Christ. It's just part of the territory. Goes with the goes with the job description. It's your new nature. It's your heritage. See, think about it. You now have divine paternity. What goes with that? You know, it's like if you're a bowlander, you got a big nose and floppy ears. Sorry. That's just what happens. Here's your heritage. As a bond slave of Jesus Christ, it's called persecution and martyrdom. 
Persecution and martyrdom are the heritage of those who become bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody's going to be assigned the ultimate assignment, but you might. And uh, don't confuse our exception to the rule. The American experience is the exception to the rule. We have been very blessed. We've been very protected. We've been very sheltered. Not just in the present century, but throughout our history. Very unique. John 15, verses 20 and 21, and then 26 and 27. Remember the word that I said to you? So he's told them this before. In the first night they've heard this. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Who's they? Who's the they in this context? The cosmos. The denizens of this, of this world. Okay. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's the they. All these things they will do to you, notice now, for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Their uh, rejection of the Father, their rejection of the Son is going to cause them to persecute. And notice the witnessing here. The word for witness is the word martyr. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will, verse 26, He will martyreo. He will martyreo. He will testify about me. Martyreo. You understand, when you are put to death for the name of Christ, that is your assignment to testify about Christ. The world will know that you love Jesus Christ when you lay down your life. Martyreo. When you are martyred, you are witnessing for your love for Christ. Otherwise, you recant. Otherwise, you compromise. You cave. You, you deny Christ. You, you save your weasel neck by uh, compromising. Or, <laughs> you uh, lay down your weasel neck. <laughs> All right? And you get a new neck with a new body in heaven. Okay? This is the verb martyro, to testify about me. In verse 27, you will testify also. You will martyreo. You will bear witness. You will be martyred. And as a matter of prophecy, it is true. Every apostle was martyred. Sole exception being the apostle John. But that's not for lack of trying. <laughs> they tried to put him to death too. They threw him in a vat of boiling oil. He just, you know, enjoyed the bath, I guess. You know, good for the skin maybe. Uh, God preserved him. God preserved him. He was the only one to die of old age. But he did suffer. Okay? They all did. Every apostle did. So, you will testify also. You will martyreo also. You will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, we want to witness. That is, euangelizomai. We want to evangelize. And in our witnessing, we give the gospel, we give the gospel, we give the gospel, we evangelize, but we also martyreo. We also bear witness as martyrs if called upon in the plan of God. So persecution and martyrdom, they are the heritage of those who become bond slaves of Jesus Christ. 
So just expect. You don't think it's any strange thing. And if dark days are in store for our nation, get ready. Be prepared. The Boy Scout motto. It's also our motto. We'll see it in chapter 16. We have the doctrine ahead of time so that we adjust our thinking ahead of time. If you think about it ahead of time, your training kicks in and there you are. When, when called upon in, in the assignment. We'll talk about this. Finally then, the cosmos is held to account for the rejection of the Christ. The cosmos is held to account for their rejection of the Christ. Now it's always been true prior to the coming of the Christ. Rejection of the coming Messiah had its consequences, obviously. But it's so much greater with the past completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cosmos is held to account for the rejection of the Christ. I want you to see some things here pertaining to this. And why it is that our role is uh, so much more intense. Um, unbelievers have always hated believers. Back to Old Testament time. I mean, Cain murdered Abel, right? I mean, that's nothing new. It's always been the case. But how much more is it a reality when those unbelievers are denizens or citizens or uh, beings of the, of the cosmos that's not only a fallen cosmos, but a fallen and condemned cosmos, a fallen and judged cosmos, serving uh, their leader who is now a judged leader. That is, Satan now has been judged. Okay? I want you to start seeing some differences. He said, if I had not come, if I had not come and spoken to them, understand the nature of that. It's, it's, it's not true. He did come. He did speak to them. Okay? But had he not done so, then circumstances are different. But because he has done so, things are now very different than how they were before. You understand that? Um, but now... They have no excuse. How many excuses did they have before? None. That's right. <laughs> they were without excuse then as well. But now they are doubly without excuse. They're even more without excuse. You see how that works? They were without excuse anyway from the creation of the world. Romans 1 says, from the creation of the world, uh, he's been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. They've always been without excuse. They've never had an excuse since the universe was created. But now they have even less of an excuse. They have doubly no excuse. Because they have the creation. Now there's the new creation. Now there's the, there's the church. Things are seen. Uh, his, his eternal attributes and, and divine power have been clearly seen, being seen through what has been made. Well, guess what? Now they've got two things that they can see. They can see what has been made in terms of the creation. They can also see what has been made in terms of the church, the bride of Christ. They are now doubly without excuse. Because remember, we are now the new creation in Christ. Likewise, um, not only if I had not spoken, if I had not done, verse 24, if I had not done among them the works. Okay, So now, it, it really, if you think about it, they're triply without excuse. Because what he said leaves them doubly without excuse, and then what he did should leave them triply without excuse. 
If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. That is, accountability and guilt. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Oh, they saw it all right. <laughs> and this is the thing. It wasn't in their ignorance. It wasn't that they were deceived. It wasn't that they didn't know any better. Oh, they knew full well. They knew what they were hearing. And they hated it. They knew what they were seeing. And they hated it. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It's, it's particularly egregious for Israel because they were the recipients of all the promises. They were the recipients of the covenant. They were recipients of the promise. They should have had, the Pharisees should have been first in line to identify the Christ. Experts that they were in the law. He says, you search the scriptures and they, bear, they, they testify about me. All right. Now, it's not the first time he's given such things. Let's notice back to chapter 12 and verse 31. John 12 and verse 31. And this is, uh, this is on Palm Monday. He's had his triumphal entry and... Um, so forth. He's here and the children are singing Hosanna. The Pharisees are saying, shut up. <laughs> and uh, his soul is troubled. He's, he's, uh, he's arrived in Jerusalem for his Passion Week. My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And now once again, just like it did at the baptism of the River Jordan, the heavens are open and the voice cries out. A voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So a crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this cosmos. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. See, the victory that he achieves on the cross is what disarms the rulers and authorities. The victory that he achieves on the cross is what entitles him to expel Satan from the courtroom of heaven. Now, it's an expulsion that won't take place until the midpoint of the tribulation or possibly the rapture event. But he will be expelled from heaven. He will have a point where he is no longer allowed to file those accusations. But notice judgment, and it's because Jesus Christ is here to do that work on the cross. He has had his triumphal entry. He has been identified as the Christ, at least by the children, if not by the religious leaders. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So, uh, he's ready to go to the cross. He's ready to be lifted up. The cosmos is judged. Judgment is upon this world. Notice, now. The emphasis on the now. Likewise, um, chapter 16, verse 11. We'll get into this shortly. Why is it that the Holy Spirit in the church age can convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Because of Jesus Christ's victory on the cross. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. And concerning judgment. Why? 
because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of this world has been judged. With the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, the ruler of this world has been judged. We'll, we'll deal in that when we get into chapter 16. Look at Peter's sermon, though, in Acts 3. Acts 3.23. He indicates some things I find very interesting here, whereby all the doctrine that we're looking at here that was given in the night in which Christ was betrayed, it starts to sink in and he starts to digest it and he starts to reflect it in the message that he delivers here in Acts chapter 3. Recognizing that um, there were uh, there are consequences for the uh, re- rejection of the Christ who finally comes, different from the unbelievers that are rejecting the coming Christ and in anticipation looking forward. Once the prophet comes, who who has prophesied, then rejection of what he has to say, rejection of what he's done, is final and eternal. And so, um, well, man, there's a long context here. Let's point out here that you, uh, verse 12, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made this man walk? He didn't mean to make this guy walk. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. (laughs) You know, rub it in. Pilate was going to let him go. Pilate found no guilt in the man. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay? This is this wonderful event here in Acts chapter 3. And you've got to wonder, I mean, this man had been laying here for years and years and years. And uh, remarkable, Jesus, I mean, how many times did Jesus walk past this guy and never heal him? Purpose was to reserve this for after the resurrection for the apostles to, uh, to heal. All right. But now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, with the thing which God announced beforehand. By the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. God did everything that his plan and purpose appointed to happen. And so, uh, anyway, we get into some other things. We get down now to the prophecy by Moses in verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God, this comes out of Deuteronomy 18, by the way. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That from Moses to Christ, there's going to be no shortage of prophets. And they're all going to be abused. They're all going to be rejected. They're all going to be hated. They're all going to be persecuted. But when you get to this one, okay, 
And, of course, there's consequences for mistreating those prophets leading up to this one. But this one is the ultimate. This one is the final word. This one is the one for which rejection of this message, <laughs> eternal consequences. You understand? All right? Eternal consequences. There is a new accountability. There is a new accountability. The cosmos is held to account for the rejection of the Christ. All right. We'll pick up on this next week. We'll come back to main point eight. This train of thought. Jesus picks up his train of thought from chapter 15. The, the idea of conflict. I mean, the cosmos hating you, the cosmos persecuting you. He expands on it in John 16. And he gives a warning concerning the angelic conflict and the coming dispensation of the church. He gives a warning in John 16. What it is they can expect. They're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They're going to be, they're going to be um, attacked. They're going to be killed you. They're going to, you're going to be killed. And when they kill you, they're going to think they're doing God a favor for killing you. God's going to be very pleased because you put all those Christians to death. And uh, it will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. I, th I think this is a prophecy that relates to the Apostle Paul. This is what, this is what Saul of Tarsus was doing. He was, he was persecuting Christians, serving what he thought was serving God, proving his devotion, proving his zeal, trying to out-Pharisee every Pharisee out there. So we'll deal with this, all right? And... Uh, how it is that we, uh, we should be oriented in the angelic conflict. And how it is we should rejoice that the, uh, the uh, church age in which we operate is far greater than anything this world's ever seen. So that's coming up. We'll come back to chapter 16 one week from today. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. I rejoice over the truth of your word and the resources that we have in Christ. I thank you that, yes, we have persecution, we have affliction. But, Father, it's all momentary light affliction, not worthy to be compared. Everything that, is, that uh, the world can throw at us is of this world. So, Father, I pray that we would uh, be steadfast and movable. I pray that we would uh, learn how to rejoice over the heavenly realities, that, uh, that everything we endure in this cosmos, for your sake, for Christ's sake, is uh, going to resound in the eternal weight of glory. And so, Father, uh, we, uh, we learn how to, to count it all joy. We learn how to rejoice in everything, and everything give thanks. And I thank you that uh, this message that Christ gave to his disciples in the night in which he was betrayed is, uh, is a message that we ought to just read over and over and over and over again every day for our Christian walk because it's so applicable to this, this present evil age. I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.